We've been thinking about God first. We've been talking about God first for about 30 weeks, trying to put God first in our lives and and what that might mean. And that's a big thought, isn't it? I mean, it's just a, a little statement, two words, God first. Over the past 30 weeks, how well do you feel like you've put it into action in your life? Because it's two words, but it's a big statement, isn't it? And, and what, what, what faces that, that calling, that idea, that gift that we've been given to think about God first, lies a temptation that sits in front of us all the time. It's a big temptation. And in fact, it's such an insidious temptation I think we almost never recognize that it's actually in front of us. The best lie is the one that you don't recognize as a lie, right? Right? And so, so the, the temptation that sits in front of us, the problem, the, the issue is this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Because if Jesus isn't enough, then God will never be first, right? You'll always need to add something to it. Something plus God. And that temptation is all around us in so many different ways. Jesus is great, yeah, but we really need to get this guy in office. Jesus is great, yeah, but we really need to protect ourselves. We really need to watch. We can't let this bad things happen. Because, you know, we've got, we've got, you know, you've got religion, you've got church, you've got Jesus, you know, and, and that's all great, that's all well, that's all good. But I also live in the real world. And I have to make real world decisions every day. So Sunday is Sunday, and Monday is Monday. I need Jesus, sure, salvation, heaven, all that. But I still have to put my feet in the world. We call that pragmatism. And that is a primary sin in the church. It's sister sin is much like it. The sister sin is materialism. And materialism is that thing that says, well, yes, Jesus is enough, but I really want a bigger car or a bigger TV or a bigger house or more kids or a better Whatever. That yes, Jesus is great for all that spiritual stuff, but I also have this hole in my life that I need to fill with some, with some stuff. And I know you're all guilty of that because I've seen you guys at Bath and Body Works. <laughs> A store full of nothing anyone needs. <laughs> Best Buy, that's my, I mean, I walk through Best Buy and I say, I, it's sort of like it's sort of like covet here, like in big, in big line. Like just go go ahead, go in there, and, and, and you know. In fact, Scott Bontrager uh, put this up on Facebook. The, the one good thing that happened on Facebook this week, I thought this was really funny. Work harder, happiness is around the country. Earn more, buy more things, start all over again. Isn't that the best definition of the rat race you've ever seen? It's great. 
I mean, that, that's what it is. That, that's the, the danger is that, that it, you know, it isn't, it isn't even necessarily the big things, but it's these little things that keep on chipping away at this idea that we have been given throughout the scriptures that God really is first, that God really is supreme, that Jesus really is enough, and yet everything about the world is constantly chipping at that and saying, it's not really true. It's not really true. There's this verse that's kind of been just echoing in my brain from 1 John, which says, For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the passions, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father. And that is what sits in front of all of us. That's what sits in front of the people who are receiving this letter, this letter called Hebrews, written to, guess what? Hebrews, who are wrestling with that same problem, who are wrestling with that same temptation, who are wrestling with the fact, in fact, what we think as we kind of uh, catch clues throughout the letter, that they are actually under persecution. They're actually suffering for their faith. And they're asking that question, is Jesus really enough? If Jesus is enough, then why are things so bad? Why is life so hard? Why are things not clicking and going the way I think they ought to? Is Jesus is really enough. And so Hebrews offers us a very thick answer. Some of the books of the Bible are, are, are relatively easy to read, like the stories, the parables of Jesus. We can puzzle over them, but they're, they're simple in their concept. Hebrews is not simple at all. It is a thick book. And so you've got to put, what do they say, in like first grade? Put your thinking caps on. Right? Put those thinking caps on. Get them on. Get them ready. Now, if we, if I were to sort of roughly describe Hebrews, just kind of a big picture thing, you, you, if you're a scholar, you would nitpick and say, well, Jordan, that's not quite exact. But just broad picture things. Let's say this Hebrews 1 gives us kind of a picture of the divinity of Jesus. Oh, oh thank you for asking. That's exactly, I needed somebody to ask me that. I actually forgot I told him to yell at me. <laughs> Startled me a little bit. <laughs> Verse 2 of Hebrews 1. God, Jesus is called the creator of the universe. If you know anything about the Old Testament and its constant mantra, there is one God, 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 there is how many? And Jesus is the one who created the universe, which makes us stop and say, wait a second, what is Jesus then? Verse 3 says he is the exact imprint, one for one, of divinity. Verse 3 then continues on, that he sustains, he upholds the universe with the power of his word. And in verse 6, it says that the angels, the divine beings that hide the unseen things, they are to worship Jesus. That highlights the divinity of Jesus. Let's us know that Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just somebody who you ought to listen to because he has some tidbits of wisdom about God, the universe, and everything. But rather, he is the incarnation, the presence of God on earth. Come to rescue you and me and all the lost folks that, that Phil talked about just a minute ago. 
Then moving on to Hebrews chapter 2, we have a shift in focus toward the humanity of Jesus. I remembered that time. Didn't startle me. Verse 14, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Just grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. Um, I'm on page uh, 1002. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be reading in this text here uh, today, but I just want to focus on verse 14 as you're maybe pulling that out and finding it. Since, therefore, the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, which is a very roundabout way of saying Jesus became man. As John puts it in his beloved gospel, John 1 and 1, the word became flesh. And dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only, as of the only Son coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have a fancy theological word that we use to tie these two transcendent themes together: hypostatic union. I expected cheers, applause. At least Phil, I mean, we're throwing out college terms here. I promise we're not trying to impress him. Uh, but this is a fancy word that we use that ties this idea together. Hypostatic union, which, which means personal union. The union of the person. That there's two natures in Jesus Christ. The divine and the human. And these are fused together in perfection so that we can say that Jesus is both God and man. And these are important things. You might be sitting there thinking, wow, I came to church today to hear about something that will not impact my life at all. No one will be impressed with my speaking about hypostatic union. I can't even say it. Hypostatic union at at work tomorrow. But you're wrong about that. This is a core doctrine that tells us something not only about the nature of God, not only about the greatness of our salvation, but about how much God cares about each and every one of us. This is a powerful truth that God became flesh and dwelt amongst us is important. And we're going to talk about that today because Hebrews wants to drive that home so that you can recognize those temptations that come up that say, oh man, Jesus isn't enough. You can say, oh no, Jesus is more than enough. So, putting your thinking caps back on, two natures, hypostatic union, Thinking caps back on. Everybody with me? Let's dive into the text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. So chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to kind of start there. It's midway, uh, a quotation from Psalm 8, which you should recognize maybe from earlier this morning as we opened our service. This is a prophetic psalm that refers to Jesus. And it says, you made him a little lower than the angels. Which isn't to say his authority is less than the angels, but that the angels, the divine things, we would call them, they dwell in heaven. They're, they're spatially above. Jesus is now in the flesh, on the ground, spatially below. That makes sense, right? Made him a little lower. He's underneath in that sense than the angels. But you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. Now here the the author of Hebrews begins to interject his own commentary. Here he was quoting scripture. Now he's going to tell us what it means. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. And yet there's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem. 
Because when you look at the world, does that look like it's true? Honestly, does it look like it's true? No, right? It didn't look like it was true 2,000 years ago. Things have not gotten better, right? We've got refrigeration and air conditioning, and that's great, praise the Lord. But everything else, humans are still just as corrupt, right? And so the, the author of Hebrews hears your thoughts. Like, well, hold on a second. Everything's in subjection to Jesus. It sure doesn't seem that way. In fact, the author, hearing our thoughts, echoes them. He says, at present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection. We might call this theologically a now and not yet. There's something that is happening now in Jesus, and yet there's this thing that we're still anticipating, a a fullness that we are awaiting, a time when everything is visibly under Jesus' feet, as it were. But what do we see? What do we see? So, what we see, we see the faithfulness of Jesus displayed. I want you to notice as we continue to read, look at verse 9. But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He, He walked the earth, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom And by whom all things exist and bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now this is a lot of, there's a lot of deep material here. And so I want to try to make it as clear as I can because again, like I said, this is, this is thick. And so you guys are smart, intelligent, able to follow arguments really well. You've got your, your tin foil thinking caps on we're ready to go and so what you see here is an argument that is being made about the supremacy of jesus christ in the humanity of jesus christ what do humans do humans die jesus died and he tasted death for all but he didn't just stay dead did he up from the grave he arose we sing right overcoming death and so he is then crowned with glory and honor and this is echoed forth from the prophets. Jesus, in living this out, fulfills the words of the prophets from the Old Testament. Now, you might be here today, and you might be a baby Christian, or maybe you're not even sure about Jesus. This is sort of all new to you, and you're like, well, I don't know who the prophets are or why I should care about them. Here's why you should care. You should care because we were told hundreds of years before Jesus that he would come. Which tells us something. It tells us that this is a part of God's plan. That you can trust a God who can foretell hundreds of years before he came that the Messiah would come. And you can trust a God who keeps the promises that he lays out. And the hundreds of year bit helps us understand that God doesn't answer our prayers in our time. God does what God wills. And so sometimes it might seem like things aren't happening the way we want them to, at the timetable we want them to be happening. And yet, by looking at the way that God fulfills his promises, we see that time is nothing to God. Time is a lot to us. Our lives seem like they're really long. Our lives are a a vapor, the Bible says. They just, they come and they go. But God, who is faithful through the millennia, will be faithful to you. 
And so these prophecies that we get about this, this one who is to come, we have in Isaiah 42 this, this, this beautiful prophecy. He will not cry aloud or he will not lift up his voice. He will not make it heard in the street. A bruised reed. So if you had a, a flower, I didn't tell Laura this until now. Uh, I, was pulling wheat, I was pulling something out of the garden and I, uh, I uprooted like this flower thing. I don't know what it is. It's just too tall and it was in the way. But I shoved enough dirt on it that it kind of like, it kind of did like this. But it didn't do this anymore. So she hasn't noticed yet. Because a bruised reed is hard. It's easy to hurt a bruised reed, isn't it? If the flower stalk is, is bruised a little bit, if it's already been bent a little bit, getting it back up takes a lot of dirt. I was piling dirt for like five minutes, maybe ten, just get it set in there just right so it still looked like it was alive. I'm sorry. The Messiah that's going to come, he is going to be so gentle, he is not going to break a bruised reed. A, a candle that's like burnt, like he's speaking about the gentleness of the one he's going. And yet there's this, this strange statement. What will he do? He will faithfully bring forth justice. Have you ever seen anything like that? In our world, if you want justice, you better bring the biggest gun. Yet the Messiah that is to come is going to be different. He's going to bring justice, but he's not going to bring it with the biggest gun. In fact, he's going to be so gentle, the bruised reed, the, the wick that's about to be blown out, he's not going to snuff it out. Isaiah 49 says that it's too light a thing that you, that is the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring them back to the preserved of Israel. I will make you. So in in other words, he's saying it's too small, too light a thing for the Messiah to spend his life focusing on making this one country, Israel, the greatest nation in the world. Instead, his focus now is going to be that the light, the salvation of the world might reach the very ends of the earth. The vision of the Messiah is that everyone would hear and heed the message of salvation. In Isaiah 53, now that's a lot of stuff. And we might remember this very well. This is the the passage that tells us that by his wounds we are healed, that he took our transgressions It was the will of the Lord to to lay upon him, to crush this Messiah with the grief of our sins, that he should bear our iniquities, that we might be accounted righteous. Because I know y'all, you ain't righteous. And I know me, I'm not either. And I need someone to step in and to save me. And the message of the Messiah in keeping with the word of the prophets who echoed hundreds of years in the past is, listen up, there is someone who is coming to save you. This demonstrates that not just fulfilling the prophets, but it demonstrates the faithfulness of Jesus. If you think about Jesus living on earth as a human being, and he is at one point in the Gospels, Luke especially points this out, that he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem, church? What is it? Somebody had it. What is it? What is it? Thank you. Somebody understands this call and response thing? The cross. 
The cross is in Jerusalem, and Jesus faces it, goes toward it. Who are you willing to go be beaten, spit upon, punched, stripped naked for, and hung up to suffocate to death on a tree? Who are you going to do that for? Your enemies? That's the message of Romans, isn't it? While we were his enemies, Christ dies for us. This isn't a story just about, we're used to thinking about faith. Like, preachers like me say, hey, put your faith in Jesus. It's not just about our thinking. Our faith is about faithfulness. When we go on vacation, Andy and Ann check on the dog because they're blessed, holy, righteous people who only steal a little bit of our food. You don't, you don't let people, like, you, when you say, I put faith in somebody to come and watch my house or let the dog, or, or just anyone, you say, I have faith in that person. What are you saying? Are you saying, I just think that that person's going to do. No, there's a sense in which they have demonstrated to you that they will keep their word. So you put your trust in that person because you've visually seen or experienced their faithfulness. We have seen not everything underneath and subjected to the, to the will of Jesus through God the Father, but we have seen the faithfulness of Jesus. And because we've seen the faithfulness of Jesus, which is, which is perfect, which is complete, which could not be added to, we can say anytime that, that temptation stands before us that says, Jesus isn't enough. We look at Jesus and we see his faithfulness and we say, no, Jesus is more than enough. Jesus, in fact, is the only one who bears this word out. He is perfect. He's perfect. Jesus' faithfulness demonstrates that. But it isn't just a demonstration of faithfulness. It is a call to you who would hear and see him that you too must be faithful. You too must follow. Another piece of the beauty of the humanity of Jesus is that we get to call him brother. You thought about you think about that's a strange thing to think about calling God brother. Um, And we could take that too far, right? I mean, you might pull a little Oprah New Age kind of nonsense up. That's what we're talking about. It's, It's a metaphor. You will never truly be, you know, God or a God or something like that. But rather, the sense that God shared in our humanity and therefore we share something with God. Notice, notice this, is what, uh, this is what the author of Hebrews does as he continues to talk about the beauty of the humanity of the Son of God. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that is, if you're new, that's a fancy church word, for to make something perfect or holy, like the one who sort of sets things right, purifies Those are all good synonyms. The one who uh, sanctifies, the one who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, that's us, who are being made holy, who are being purified, all have one source. We we share one common thing. What is that common thing? It's the humanity. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, or us, you might put it that way, brothers and sisters. This brothers is a generic, right? Brothers and sisters, 
saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And here again, the author of Hebrews is hearkening back to the Old Testament. Look, the Old Testament told you to look for this, to look for a Messiah who would come, who would call you brother or sister. Now, here's an important point. Here's an important point. Why was it so important that Jesus come as God in flesh? Part of it was so that we could see what humanity is supposed to look like. How many of you, after making a mistake, have said, ah, well, shucks, I'm just human. Right, we say that. And we might say that when you drop something, butterfingers, I'm just human. And sometimes we say that when we make mistakes. We say something we shouldn't say. It sort of, it functions as an excuse, doesn't it? Like, well, I'm just human. And that's our experience. Our experience is that, that everyone around us has let us down. If I haven't let you down, just, you know, stick around for a little while. I'll get to you. Right? I mean, the, that's, that's humanity, isn't it? No one here is perfect. None of us have it all figured out. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth and have to apologize. I mean, these, these are just realities. And so when we say, well, I'm just human, we're speaking out of our experience. And yet what Jesus reveals to us is that experience is a lie. Jesus is the full expression of humanity. He is what it is to be human. And so when we make those mistakes, what we ought to recognize is to say, we're not, we're not just being human, we are being subhuman. We are living into our sin rather than living into the glory of God. And so what we do as we behold Jesus, we look at it and we, see to our, we say to ourselves, my goodness, Jesus is the perfect one, the one I ought to be striving for and living for. And so it sets a goal in front of our eyes, but not an impossible goal, a goal to which God is continually chipping away at our garbage and moving it out of the way so that we can live the fullness of Christ. That's God's goal for your life, that you would look day by day more like our elder brother more like Jesus. He is what it is to be human. And the problem is that as we live in a world, you see through TV and social media and all, all those sources that we have, not only uh, literarily, but visually now we're able to see humanity living out its life in so many various ways. And everyone says, this is my identity and this is who I am and this is what it is to be human and this is what it is to be me. And all of those are lies if they don't look like and the call of the church then is twofold first it is to bear witness to the truth of what it looks like to be fully human and to not get sucked up into the lies of the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride if there has ever been a, a more, an age more rife with the wickedness of pride it's this one where we're so sure we've got it all figured out Jesus is the human one, and he shows us then what it is to be human. He sanctifies us so that we might become more human, and he reveals to us again and again and again his beauty. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, we are flesh and blood, right? Nerves and bones. God himself crammed his glory into a body like this. 
That's a, that's a thought, isn't it? Because that was the only way to go about bringing about a perfect salvation. Because through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so, you might think of this in terms of the devil has territory, and his territory is destruction, it's lies, it's, it's, it's evil, it's death. Death is a great personification and reality. And Jesus crammed all of his glory, his divinity, into a body like this, because bodies like this do something that divine bodies don't do. Bodies like this break down. Can I get a witness? Bodies like this die. Bodies like this suffer temptation. Bodies like this suffer greed and lust. Suffer jealousy and fits of rage. Bodies like this feel in their guts, I'd like to punch that guy's lights out. Bodies like that. I didn't ask for witnesses, Scott. (laughs) Bodies like this struggle because we are under the territory, the dominion of the evil one. And because of that, it was a body like this that needed to go through it into the grave and up from the grave to arise. So that we in these bodies can behold the beauty and faithfulness and the perfection of salvation. Verse 15. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because isn't that the thing? Like if you winnow it down, why are you afraid of losing your job? Is it just because you, you, know, you don't, you don't want to buy a bigger TV because you went into covet here Best Buy? No, it's because you're afraid for your family. Why are you afraid for your family? Because we know that hunger and cold bring about death and suffering. And that's the thing. That's the thing that tyrants all the way down to just our own fears when we have a heart, when the bones creak when we're getting out of bed in the morning. All of that, there is a slavery that we owe to death. We're destined to, it's like, it's, it's inevitable. It's knocking at the door and how many procedures, medicines, Uh, facial creams will you go through? (laughs) Y'all are getting so honest in here. I love it. That's great. A lot. Because we're slaves. We are slaves to death. If that's all you're made for, and this is sort of like whether, wherever you are on the Jesus spectrum, if you're back there at this, I'm not sure this Jesus guy is real. Let me just say this, that no matter who you are, that sort of great leveler is the fact that you are going to die. And the only religion, the only message, the only one that says, hey, listen, there is hope beyond the grave is the one who has the Savior, who came in the flesh, bore our sins, bore our death, bore our evil, and came up unscathed on the other side. That is the hope of the world. That is the only hope that there is. He has defeated every single enemy. He's crushed them beneath his faithful feet. And he offers to us a message of hope. That all of that, all of that, all of this, I forgot a couple ones, uh, All of this was so that we could see Jesus. 
that we would believe Jesus and that we would live the message and life of Jesus, that we might live full, full and truthful, graceful lives. That's a lot of stuff we've gone through today, right? Everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. It's a lot. We'll do a quick review here, even though I just hit them for the first time. We use a fancy word, hypostatic union, to talk about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. To know that the humanity of Jesus, this is part of my goal, I want you to know that the humanity of Jesus matters. It, is, it matters that we can say we have a Savior who was man and God. That it matters because, at least as Hebrews was making the argument, it matters because we have a demonstration of God's faithfulness and his foretelling through the prophets. And that Jesus then by living out the word and message of the prophets, demonstrates for us his faithfulness and invites us to participate not only in his faithfulness, but in what it looks like to be truly human. What it looks like to say, well, I'm only human. He delivers us through his death from our death that we might know the hope of eternal life, defeating sin, defeating Satan. Any, any opposition that you face that says, maybe Jesus isn't enough to beat this thing is a lie because Jesus has defeated every single enemy of any account. And I'm not saying it'll be easy to go through the trial. I'm not saying it's easy to go through the, the sickness. I'm not saying it's easy to go through the death. I'm saying it's very difficult. I'm not you know, painting any, uh, any pictures here of roses and sunshine, but I'm saying that Jesus has made it through all of that, and if he did, so can you. Especially because he has not left us alone, but rather imbued us with his Holy Spirit, that by the Spirit of God, we live and move and have our being. Now all of that's my left brain stuff. How many of you are left brain? Like just analytical, logical. Here's uh, 30 seconds of my right brain. <laughs> There's a bias here. I understand. Complain about it afterwards. There's this beautiful line in verse 18, which I want to leave you with as you take forward these great truths. Because God didn't just appear to us in Jesus so that you might have good truth that you might live good lives, but that you might recognize that when you come to Jesus, you come to someone who knows what temptation looks like. It says here, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. This word tempted in Greek could be translated in many ways. Could be, we could translate it tempted like you're being tempted by somebody. You're being tempted by your anger, your lust, your greed, your... Um, Best Buy visit. It could be a temptation that comes on the outside or from the inside, but it could also be trials, tribulations, sickness, family troubles, conflicts, arguments. In fact, we might just say trouble, for he himself has suffered through trouble. And because of that, he is able to help those who are in trouble. 
That when you go to Jesus, you don't go to a cold deity who just because he has this kind of infinite knowledge, understands and knows what you're going to say. But you go to Jesus who walked dirty, rocky, sin-covered ground and interacted with dirty, rotten, sin-covered people has experienced all of our sicknesses and all of our pain and all of our temptations and all of our trials and all of our struggles. When you go to Jesus, you go to a God who knows, who feels, and who can save. And that's why the humanity of Jesus matters. This morning, if you're bearing some weight of trouble and you need someone to pray with you and for you, our elders are going to be, there's going to be one over here and one over here. We just invite you to go and see them. Let them pray over you. Let them, let them cry with you. Let's share this struggle together. If you need to know Jesus and experience his salvation, We invite you to come forward and to meet with them as well because they can point you in the direction of salvation. Who is Jesus Christ our Lord? Let's stand and praise him with this last song.